for the last several months, our church has been listening together for God's address through the letter to the Ephesians. Now, let me just stop right there because what we're going to deal with this morning is counterintuitive to a lot of what we think. Listen to what I just said. As a church, we've been listening for God's address through the letter to the Ephesians. To be a Christian is to be converted to the view that in the Bible, God speaks. And he speaks authoritatively. And his authority in Scripture is over our reason. And it's a more sure foundation than our own perspectives. Now, that doesn't solve a lot of very difficult issues when it comes to Scripture. In fact, it creates some very difficult issues. But this is a fundamental thing about being a Christian. To be a Christian is to be converted to, among other things, the view that in the Bible, God speaks authoritatively. Now, if you have a Bible, find Ephesians chapter 5, the passage that Sophia read to us. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're brought right into the heart of Christianity. So you should be imitators of God. Dear, like dear children, conduct yourselves in love, just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. Three things here, each one of which should be unpacked into an entire sermon. Um, but this is not the point of the passage. This is kind of a summary that Paul throws out there to move on to his point. So we're going to treat it the same way. This morning, we are going to move on into the larger theme of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. But let's make sure we make some assumptions that Paul is making. All of these beg a thousand questions. All of these open up enormous areas of confusion that we need to have lots and lots of conversations for. So if I say something here up front that you think, wait a minute, you're taking that for granted. Aren't these people in this room thinking people? Yeah, but... Here's the deal. Every Sunday, I can't say everything, right? So the difference between a professor and a pastor is what a professor takes 20 years to think and write about. A pastor has to say in 20 minutes or 40 minutes. So <laughs> this is the way it goes. Number one, we see here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, there is a God, and he is full of goodness and love beyond all imagining. Just grace to the core of his being. And his love, it is as broad and as great as humankind itself, and it is as high and as deep as our misery, and it is more powerful than death. And this loving God is the one and only God, the creator of all things. That's number one. Number two, this world we live in is out of joint with the God of love. God is love and goodness and joy and peace beyond reckoning. And this is the essence of God. And yet we live in a world that this God created. And therefore it is marked by dazzling goodness. But something happened at some moment. And this world is not only marked by dazzling goodness. It is marked by horrific evil. Love and hate. Beauty and ugliness. Life and death. All of this brokenness and all of the death ways in this world, they are imposters into this world. 
They're parasites. They're hijackers. And out of his great love, God has done something about it. And here we get something unique about Christianity. Christianity is the religion that believes that what God has done to defeat evil is that he has sent Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, to defeat his evil through a sacrificial death. Now, like I said, I'm giving away a thousand hostages. That, there's so much about that. But that's packed in in verse 1. Paul is just assuming that. He's not explaining it. He's just throwing it up on the board. And we're going to do that this morning. Now, I've preached a lot on it, and I'll preach a lot on it in the future. So if you're not a Christian or you're here investigating Christianity, I'm not trying to insult your own legitimate, serious struggles with that statement by moving on past it. But this is the Christian view on which a sexual ethic is built. So I'm just going to lay that out there. That God's solution to evil was the sacrificial death of the Messiah of Israel. Number three. Christians are to imitate the love of the Creator Savior God by conducting their lives in love. So those are the three foundational things Paul starts with in Ephesians chapter 1 verses chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. At the heart of God is love. Out of that love, God has addressed the evil and brokenness in our world by sending his own son, the Messiah of Israel, to die for the world in a sacrificial way. And those who follow this God, the one and only God, are to conduct their lives in imitation of that kind of love. Love that is sacrificial, generously sacrificial, costly in its sacrificialness. Now notice... What then happens in verse 3? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So as soon as, as we are given this command to imitate God's love by living lives of love, as soon as that's brought up, immediately sex is brought up. Immediately sexual behavior is brought up. Why? Because inappropriate sexual activity is a fundamental corruption of real love. That's the point. That this amazing, beautiful, life-giving love that sits at the center of the universe, one of the ways it is corrupted is through sexual immorality. Last week we looked at a way it's corrupted through racism. A few weeks ago, um, Drew preached on a, a, the passage right before this where it's corrupted through anger and out-of-control speech. But Orthodox Christianity doesn't only challenge racist. It also challenges the sexual ethic of non-racist people. That a corruption of love is sexually inappropriate behavior. This is the Christian view. It's quite counterintuitive to what a lot of parts of our society 
practice today. Sexual misbehavior is unloving. Not love is the criteria for sexually appropriate behavior, but that sexually inappropriate behavior is unloving. It's out of step with the creator who is fundamentally loving. Now, for this sermon, what I'm going to do is try to lead us into Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, by asking three questions. Number one, what are these boundaries of sexual morality? If sexual immorality is to walk across the grain of the universe, out of step with the God of love, is to act in an unloving way, then where's that line? Number two, why is sex on the other side of that line bad? Number three, how in the world can we live inside this loving boundary? All three of these are right there in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. It's all there. Let's get started. So what are these sexual Boundaries. Well, the Bible is very clear. We heard a passage from the Old Testament. We heard a passage from Jesus' own mouth. And now we hear a passage from a part of the New Testament called the Epistles. And that's just a sampling. The Bible is clear and the Bible is consistent. The Bible is very simple. And the Bible is absolutely unambiguous. Now, some people can take a com- anything you say in the world and say, well, you were ambiguous. And you've had people say this to you when you wanted to say back to them, your mama. I was, not, I was not ambiguous. I meant exactly what I said. So just because people claim something's ambiguous doesn't mean it is. The Bible's not ambiguous on this subject. In the Bible, sexual immorality. Some of your Bibles translate Ephesians 5 uh, verse 3, fornication. That word in the Bible, it means unambiguously, consistently, from beginning to end, it always means any sexual relationship outside of a legitimate marriage between a man and a woman. That everything outside of that very small prescribed circle is immoral. It's bad. And it's interesting here because the Bible was produced in both the Old Testament and the New Testament in cultures that were very similar to modern culture, sexually speaking. But in the Bible, God reveals a sexual ethic that was fundamentally out of step with the wider, more, on this issue, more liberal views. So when we hear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, that sexual immorality and impurity must not even be named among you, God is saying to us, doesn't require a lot of education, it doesn't require a PhD in the Bible, God is saying to us that any sexual activity outside of a marriage, a legitimate marriage between a man and a woman, must not be a part of our life. Now, there's a lot of things to talk about here. Uh, Several years ago, I, I dealt with this over the course of five or six sermons, like the difference between temptation and activity, between inclination and activity. 
But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to move beyond that. If you want to talk about that, if you struggle with desires and you want to know where the desire and, and the line meet, let's please have that conversation. But in order to say what's going on here, I'm going to have to bracket that out for another time. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that any sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is bad. It's immoral. So sex between consenting adults who are not married, immoral. Sex between teenagers that love each other and are not married, immoral. Sex between people of the same gender who deeply care for one another and are exclusively devoted to one another, immoral. This is very important. There's a lot of confusion today in our society on this, but I've dealt with that issue a lot. And so in order to say some other things, I'm going to move on. Number two, why is sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman immoral? Ephesians says it's immoral because it's bad for you. Because it hurts you. Because it doesn't produce life. In other words, the laws of the Bible, the rules of the Bible, the rules of God, they're not simply a bunch of do's and don'ts. They grow out of the design of creation. The rules that God gives us in Scripture are not arbitrary rules that some meanie imposes on us to stop us from having fun. The point is that these rules are the way to life. They're the way to the best life you can possibly live. Not just good for you like, I don't know, asparagus is good for you. But no, 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 no. Like good for you in the way summer vacation is good for you. Like good, like not only good for you, but you know it's good. Like it's the kind of good for you you like, right? This is the way. This is the path into futures of shalom, into flourishing. This, that line in Ephesians, look at verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. It is because of these things that God's wrath is coming on people who are disobedient. Now, sometimes when we hear stuff like that in Scripture, we tend to think, oh, God will get mad at me if I look at pornography. God will be mad at me if I have sex with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. But that's not the point here. That's what people raised in a culture that think of rules as the imposition of some imperial removed federal authority. That, that's what we've been trained to think of rules as in America. Our fundamental view of rules in America came out of that massive set of movements that produced the French Revolution and produced all other kinds of things that fundamentally saw rules as external and impositions and arbitrary. And we've got to throw all of those off to find real freedom. And so when Americans read passages like this, our kind of gut instinct is to feel like God's wrath and these rules, this is arbitrary stuff. But that's not the point that you get when you read the Bible as a narrative and you start at the beginning and you just read straight on the way through. By the time you get here, you've seen that rules in God's economy 
are not like that. They're different. And we hear this in the passage that was read to us from Proverbs that Andrew read to us. In Proverbs 6, it doesn't say don't have sex with your neighbor's wife because God's going to smite you because he doesn't want you to have any fun. No, it says you're an idiot if you do that. Like it's just going to not work out. Like that's like taking fire into your lap. Oh, that's a good idea. That's Proverbs says the reason it's sin to have sex with your neighbor's wife is because it will rip and tear your street apart and it will ruin your life. It's just bad for you. This doesn't work. We see this in Romans chapter 1. The point is God's wrath, listen close to this, God's wrath. When the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it includes that steady process That when somebody chooses to behave in a certain way, part of who they are actually changes and corrodes them. The choices that we make, the actions that we pursue, they leave tracks in our neural system we're discovering these days. When people choose to behave in certain ways, they become that kind of person. We sometimes say to our children, don't lie, you'll become a liar. Don't be unkind, you'll become profoundly unkind. In other words, when you come across passages talking about the wrath of God, remember, this isn't just a punishment waiting for people at the end of the present age. It's not an arbitrary thing where God makes up a rule, and if you break the rule, God smacks you. He gets mad at you. No, this is the point. God's wrath is built into creation. Don't jump off a roof or God's wrath will consume you. Now, how does God's wrath function in that moment? By the law of gravity. God's wrath. How does God's wrath function with adultery? By the man whose wife you sleep with beating you silly. By your family falling apart. By your your street utterly descending into acrimony. God's wrath is built into creation. There are certain ways of behaving which are so out of line with the way the Creator made the world, and humans in particular, that they bring their own consequences. And sexual misbehavior is certainly one of them. Do you know how to eliminate sexually transmitted diseases? A closed system. One man, one woman. Right? This this fundamentally changes things. The, The best prophylactic for teenagers, for college students, is abstinence. God, creation has its own wrath of God built into it. For example. Not only, the the adultery one's quite easy, but think about pornography. Study after study has indicated pornography is corrupting. It's not just the Christians that are saying this. There's massive data to indicate that. I I recently read someone who said, what we're seeing in all of these studies is that if sex is like money, pornography is a massive devaluation of the currency. 
the wrath is built into creation itself. Pornography is bad because it harms you. It messes you up. And that's the wrath of God. So the reason that we go straight from the command to imitate God by living lives of love to sexual misdeeds is because love is the center. It is the best thing about this universe. And the corruption of the best is the worst corruption of all. So Shakespeare put it this way. He said, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. The corruption of the best is the worst corruption of all. So this is very important. There's a lot of confusion today about why this stuff is bad. And what I'm saying is it's bad because it's bad for you. Thousand questions to ask about that. But Paul says more. How? How can we live lives of sexual goodness? If, if the sexual wholeness is such a narrow thing, sex between a husband and a wife, outside of that, no sexual behavior, no sexual actions, uh, relationship whatsoever. So that means the majority of people in this room, if they have sexual relationships, with engage in sexual activity, the majority of this room is being immoral. Less than half of this room are husbands and wives. So Christianity isn't just trying to mess with people who have same-sex desires. Christianity is far more conservative than that. It's everybody except the few people who are married. And even within that, there's all sorts of seasons of marriage where sex is not possible. I mean, it just gets, see, everybody should rise up and feel the cut of the sexual ethic. Now, how in the world can we do this? How in the world can those of you who have deep, unalterable same-sex desires, how can you live sexually holy lives? How can those of you who are struggling with gender dysphoria, how can you have sexually holy lives? Those of us who are married, how can we have sexually holy lives? For all of us in this room, with all of our unique and particular struggles, how can we actually stay out of the bad behavior? Six antidotes in this passage. Number one, don't be naive it ain't easy. It's not easy. I mean, in this passage, there's a whole bunch of reasons that come up that this is not easy. One is that we live in the midst of a cultural tsunami of sexual immorality. Look, look at verse 6, the beginning of it. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There is a lot of argument for why sex outside of that boundary is okay. There is a lot of like commonsensical thinking that just says, yeah, in this situation it's okay. And Paul says, no, that's foolishness. Don't be deceived by it. We live in the midst of a tsunami of ideas and practices and images and metaphors and stories that are constantly getting us to think that this circle is not nearly so tight. Another reason it is so difficult, it's not just the external issue, it's the internal issue. So many of us are broken in ourselves apart from what's going on in society. All human beings, some of the time, 
struggle with sexual morality. And some human beings, most of the time, struggle with sexual morality. Some some people have deep, heartfelt longings for kinds of sexual intimacy and gratification which just do not reflect the Creator's best intentions for His human creation, intentions through which wisdom and new flourishing will come to birth. But sexual restraint is mandatory for all of us. It is difficult for most of us. And for some of us, it is extremely challenging. And yes, God is gracious. But you jump off of a roof and the grace of God And the breaking of your arm. How do you slice and dice that dude? I mean, what would you say to somebody who said to you, God is gracious as they leap off the roof? Would you say that the exact calculus of foolishness and graciousness is hard to figure? Sexual immorality is foolish. The wrath of God is built into creation. God is gracious and merciful, but this never means that his sexual standards do not really matter after all. And a third reason that it is so difficult, let's not be naive, it ain't easy. A third reason it's not easy is because there are really confusing situations. Really, really confusing. I mean, like, what do we do? How how can we help? A person who is born with innate, unalterable, same-sex desires. It's a very complicated situation. There are moments in life. I, I, as a pastor, I have dealt with people from childhood into their much, much senior years who face incredibly complex situations. And yet, God's standard is there. So let's, first of all, prepare ourselves for a strenuous reorientation in the ways that God is love and the ways that God loves and the ways that we practice love in company with God through our sexual behavior. It's not easy. Let's recognize that. Number two, we have to learn to be motivated on this issue by fear. We have to. I know that we want a form of behavior modification today that doesn't use fear at all. And I know that this is a complicated issue. I'm reading through the Bible right now and At the very heart of God revealing himself to Israel was them learning how to fear him and how to love him and how these things do go together. And yes, you can get in some really dysfunctional places. But if you try to take fear out of the relationship with God, you are going to get in a really dysfunctional place also. Remember verse 6, God's wrath is built into creation. You should be afraid of sexual sin. Because God's wrath will come against you. 
And you should fear that. My child should fear running out into the middle of Franklin Street without looking around. And that fear will produce in my child wisdom that leads to life. It's interesting. There is a massive shift in the sexual ethic of the early Christians from the surrounding cultures in which the New Testament was produced. In the same way that Christianity has a much more conservative sexual ethic than the surrounding cultures it was produced in ours today. In the same way it has a different motivating factor. The primary motivation for sexual morality, it was a different sexual morality, in the Greco-Roman culture was honor and shame. Anytime we read those writers in the Greco-Roman culture at the time of the New Testament or at the ancient Near East in the time the Old Testament was produced, anytime they identified a sexual boundary, the motivation they emphasized was the avoidance of shame. But early Christians identified a very different basis for their behavioral standards. In general, the organizations and religions and civic groups in Rome, in the Roman culture that had behavioral expectations of their members, in in general, they would appeal to the, the, the members' sense of honor and the avoidance of shame as the basis for living out the virtues they were arguing for. But early Christianity identified a different basis. In the Bible, we see that in place of worry about embarrassment, we see that the motivation is fear of judgment. The judgment of God in his wrath carved into creation. And we have got to recover that. We cannot recover a sexually holy practice if we try to keep that out of it again a thousand questions that's mainly my my agenda this morning is just to say stuff and not prove it and uh, number three number three watch your speech look at verse four let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And look at verse 12. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So let me just ask you, what is the speech of your friend set like? Don't even talk about sexual immorality and that kind of stuff. Every time you mention the words, every time an off-color story or joke passes your lips, you defile yourself. You shift your thinking and your imagination subtly, uh, centimeter by centimeter, toward the whole way of life that leads to darkness and death. Of course you must avoid sexual immorality. But the antidote is recognize it's not easy. Learn how to bring fear into your life that, that can coexist with a deep love for God. And purify your speech. What is the speech of your circle like? Does your 
Do you move in a group of people that if any statement is made that can be read as a double entendre, a joke is immediately made? There was a very popular TV show um, that had this joke in it where somebody would say something, it would leave open a double entendre, and the quip was, that's what she said. And the amount of Christians who brought that into their speech, this is terrible. This is an, a, a centimeter by centimeter way of moving your imagination to a place of profound vulnerability. Don't you want to move in a circle where a really awkward thing can be said that could be read as a double entendre and the people around you don't even notice because they've had such habits of speech they just don't go there. Number four, a fourth antidote in this particular passage is singing. Did you notice all the stuff about singing? Ephesians 5 verses 1 to 20 is about sexual morality. Everything in there is about that subject. Everything in there is Paul dealing with a communal sexual ethic. Look at verse 14. No, no, no. Don't Look at verse 19 first. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. This is one of the ways. So look, take out sexual joking and replace it with thankfulness. We saw that. And one of the antidote Paul brings up is singing the kind of music that is praise to God. Now, this is tricky. See, I grew up in a family that said, okay, therefore... All non-explicitly Christian music is off base. So I wasn't allowed to listen growing up to anything but explicitly Christian music. And, and now I, I operate different than that. I see, I see it different than that. And our children, we let them listen to the radio and to lots of stations on the radio. But we, we have a much harder job than my parents had. See, my parents, because by saying you can only listen to the Christian radio, they didn't have to then work really hard to disentangle all the craziness on all the other stations. But we do. All truth is God's truth. It doesn't have to be explicitly Christian to be God's truth. And there's a lot of really true and good things all over the radio. But there is also a lot of bad stuff. So you can either go the really easy route that I was raised in a culture that did. Or you can walk into a much more difficult place. I think it's worth it. But you still, that doesn't mean you just, you just no longer realize that music matters and songs matter. But verse 19 is not the first time that music comes up in the passage. Look at verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In most of your Bibles, that's set off into stanza format. It's sort of like poems. You know why? Because we're, we're 99% sure Paul is quoting a song. He's quoting one of the early Christian songs of worship. And what does it do? It calls us to wake up and live in the light of God. I've just, um, I just finished reading Deuteronomy. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is about to die. The people of Israel are about to move into the, the land. And God says to Moses, look, they're going to forget everything that, that, 
that I've told them, and they're not going to live the way they should. And you know what the final, the final antidote to that is in Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy ends with this. God says, Moses, I'm going to give you a song. I want you to learn it, and I want you to teach it to Israel, because when they fall away, they'll remember the song. Like, that's not... I'm not like interpreting the passage. That's exactly what it is. So when Paul brings up singing here, he's, deep, he's dipping deep, deep into the re- revealed will of God to his people. And he's recognizing that music really does matter on this issue. Christian hymns and songs are not simply decorative, little pleasant oral embroidery around the Christian faith and practice. Singing, whether aloud or in your heart, this is an excellent way of healing your perverted thoughts. If you don't want weeds to grow in your garden, one of the best ways is to have a lot of good flowers crowding out the weeds. All right, number five, don't get drunk. Did you know that people who get drunk tend to do things they shouldn't do with their genitals? Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery. Hey, so here's a good one. Don't get drunk. The Bible doesn't ever say drinking alcohol is a sin. In fact, it says the opposite a lot. Over and over and over. Wine is one of the best gifts God gives to humans. The Bible says. And it even says that well-aged wine is better than the, the swill. A lot of us can afford to drink. But... But what the Bible always says over and over and over is drunkenness is a sin because it's dumb. Bad things happen. You do bad things. Teenagers, college students, don't get drunk. Adults, don't get drunk. This is one of the antidotes. I know you want something more profound, but let's just start here. Now to wrap this up, let's go back to chapter 5. I think I said there were six things. I miscounted. There are five things. All right. Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God like dear children. Conduct yourselves in love just as the Messiah loved us and gave himself for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Inappropriate sexual behavior is a corruption of the love that sits at the heart of the universe and gives life. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.